Welcome to Soil Health Lab's Plug and Plant Podcast, engaging farmers, ranchers, and researchers in the pursuit of healthy, functioning soils. Welcome to the next episode in the Plug and Plant Podcast. I am Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And this is the fourth episode in our Growing Resilience series. Buzz Clute has you on the details. Well, this one, fairly simple. This is an issue that is especially important in the James River Valley is, is the issue of salinity. Now, there are a number of causes of salinity, but in this discussion, the guys were talking about salinity and how to deal with it. And really, it went back to the most effective way is starting to look at perennials. So not only alfalfa, but native warm season grasses. Daniel Harnish, who is really a terrific speaker and a very, very knowledgeable, talked about other species like western wheatgrass, garrison creeping foxtail, and uh, little plactoid canary grass. So these are species that I've never heard of, but obviously they're being used in that situation. Uh, so livestock and perennials was certainly a really important component of dealing with um, with salinity, and as you'll see, it's a, it's a pretty complex issue. The second part, Bryce Rabenhorst, who is a transitioning farmer, was really asking a question about how does he get wheat into his rotation and still stay in business. Um, just one other thing is that Sarah Bader, SDSU extension agent who works out of Mitchell, I believe, jumped in the conversation as well. So you'll hear Sarah's voice. Uh, she not only is an extension agent, but she has experience as a youngish farmer in terms of uh, incorporating small grains into the rotation and how they manage to do that and then also market it. Yeah, and I think Bryce's question about how to include small grains in the rotation is a very powerful, pertinent question to farmers that are considering more diversity in their crops and Bryce is looking that looking straight at that and how he can include that without taking an economic hit. Right, right. So yeah, it's it's easy for us to say, yeah, you know, it's going to give our us a yield bump right. on the corn and soybeans, but how do you have, you know, manage that cash flow initially? Exactly. Well, we'll get out of the way and let you guys enjoy this fourth episode in our growing resilience series. Once again, everyone around the table will introduce themselves, and then we'll hand it over to Ken Vlieger. My name is Charlie Edinger, and I live in Mitchell, but mainly farm west of Mitchell. My name is Daniel Harsh, originally from Clayton, South Dakota, currently live in Freeman. Hi, I'm Craig Staley. Um, I farm with my brother, Gene. Bryce Rabenhorst from Salem, South Dakota. I'm Sarah Bowder. I work as an agronomy field specialist with SDSU Extension. I and mean, I get the opportunity to work with a lot of different growers in different situations across the state. And here is Kent opening up the discussion about salinity. Okay, so, um, you know, from my, from my field experience um, with the NRCS, uh, working out of, you know, in the James River Valley, like most of us are here, maybe Bryce a little further east than that, but uh, 2010 and 11 were, were wetter than average years also. And 
know, we, we saw salinity issues pop up after that. They really became prevalent. And, you know, we had those high water years and the water table rise and then salts come as we have, you know, more average precipitation years. Um, you know, so there's some concern, I think, uh, amongst producers, landowners, and, you know, uh, NRCS folks, that's the salinity issues are gonna become worse if we have average precipitation years going on. Um, do you guys have salinity issues? If you do, how are you managing them? Um, or do you think uh, your neighbors are aware of how to manage them and what causes them? Um, I guess if you don't want to speak to that. Yeah, the salinity is an issue. Um, we've got, on our operation, we do run both livestock and grain. Um, so we've got some advantage there of being able to use some perennials and other things, alfalfa in the rotation, um, big blue stem, Indian switchgrass, western wheatgrass type things. Western wheatgrass is one that's very good at salinity. Um, the challenge is a lot of times guys look at the salinity spot and want to plant something in that spot. But the salinity is originating up on top the hill. Um, that's where if you can get something alfalfa or a grass growing it in more of the field, a bigger area, we can stop that salinity or that transfer of nutrients before it gets there. The issues we have is it, the ground's been farmed 100 years before us already. So there's a lot of that has gone into those spots and removing that's not just a one or two year process. Um, rye and things help and cover crops, building organic matter. Um, we've resorted to drain tile and some of that just to get some of the salts out. But as we design those systems, we always have to keep in mind we need to go above them. Um, maybe implementing a rotational grazing or something would be an option. The trouble we have is making it economical. Taking a $5,000 acre piece of ground and putting it into a grazing system doesn't necessarily pay for the bills. Um, Keeping our debt down, we have lots of options on doing things, but when we look to expand into new ground, that becomes an issue. Can we really incorporate that livestock effectively um, and still be able to pay that type of rent or things or getting a landowner to see that value? Um, will they reduce the rent for the years that it's in a perennial? So far, we haven't found many that are willing to take us up on that offer, um, but that is a a way of dealing with it, putting it into a perennial for a number of years. You know, it, really the salinity is, it's a symptom of the issue, which is actually water use. And I think you did a pretty good job of talking about that, how you, you can't just put that area that's, that's got the white on the surface and is obviously saline. You have to take in probably more, uh, more acres within there to actually use enough water to, to make a difference. Um, so you talked a little bit about perennial use. Um, have you tried using on some of those areas where it's maybe not, the salinity isn't severe enough where you can't get a cover crop to germinate? Have any of you tried to do cover crops in those saline areas to kind of help remediate or bring those salts back down? Well, I think, you know, it, it all goes back. For one thing, I think people don't think about it. It's like the, they have a new program out that make every acre count. A lot of these salinity areas, you know, especially when margins are tight. I mean, the yield is so low, and, and everybody just, we just keep going over them. We're putting seed on, putting fertility, you know, hopefully not putting very much on for fertility, but you put all this money in, 
you got way negative margin that pulling down your better producing areas. So I mean, a lot of ours, we probably a lot of fields. You know, there's ten to twenty percent of the area that's just you're in a negative margin all the time. You just even if you don't get a lot of return off the perennial grass, at least you're saving all the inputs. And, and there's so many programs where you can put in the CRP, and there's I know the NRCS they're coming out with new programs all the time to put perennial grass. The really bad ones, I mean really only way to fix them is put it in perennial grass and then when you get them fixed, if you take it back out, make sure you keep the intensity above them where the salt saline is coming from uh, higher. So you got to use more cover crops, try to get your water intensity used higher and, and just make sure that when you put that in the cover, make sure you go out past the salinity area with the grass. You got to go up up the side slope a ways in order to fix that problem. But I think if you look at it from, yeah, you're not going to get a lot of money out of that grass, but it's going to save you losing hundreds of dollars on inputs by farming it. It, it. And it makes sense. I mean, you see people, especially these wetter areas, if there's cattails growing there, just stay out of there. Because all you're going to do, you, you go in there, I see people in a dry year, they go in, they diss the cattails out. Well, the next year it rains again. Now, but you don't have the cattails using up the water. I mean, you should have just left them in the first place, just leave it in the permanent vegetation. We have had some success in those areas that have cattails using stuff like garrison creeping foxtail or a little plateaued canary, something that can tolerate the water and still make a hay out of it. Um, yeah, in a really wet year, you can still lose some of that and not be able to harvest it and some cattails come back. But we have had success doing that. Um, and I'll use garrison in the low areas in the alfalfa and then alfalfa in the rest of the field. Garrison or western wheat combinations in the lowest help the soil that's their salinity, but the other part is the alfalfa using that before it gets there. Like you're saying, we got, we got to intercept that water and salt and, well, actually nutrients. It's not salt, it's PK, potassium, it's all our nutrients, the good stuff that's in those areas. We need to utilize that fire higher up the profile. I've noticed too, you know, you talk species selection, you know, barley, things like that has worked well in the salt areas. I've used that on my own place. Um, I primarily graze my cover crops, but, you know, not grazing those, letting those areas, you know, um, decompose or, you know, just fall over and not graze it off so you don't remove all that residue and open up any bare ground. Definitely helps with some of the salts. You know, perennial vegetation is by far the best option though keeping a live root in that soil, utilizing moisture. Even though the plant's not growing much in April, you're still utilizing moisture, still putting roots down. The root mass is, is growing. Yep. It's just, and it's hard in general to get species to establish in those salt areas. It might be two, three years before we get a decent stand out there of perennial vegetation. So back to that barley, that's kind of a plan we've got put together for this year is to do some barley with a little bit of tillage radish in it. Um, on some of our end rows that we're having issues with getting anything off of and we're going to put the barley in with the tillage radish and whatever comes we'll maybe we'll harvest a little bit so we got some seed for the next year and then we'll probably go into it with rye for for the next year just take take it out of the cropping season for a couple years there because we're not getting anything off of it right now and try to try to see what we can do with it off of using the cover crops the winter rye is what you're planning yeah yep if you can let that winter rye grow in spring 
the root growth is what will help there. I mean, we've done digs where we've had winter, winter rye that's three and four foot tall. The roots are down there three plus foot. I mean, deeper than anyone's ripper is going to go. Um, it's, it, is, it is a natural ripper. I can't say I can really add too much more, um, but for some reason, I, as far as we have a few spots scattered throughout the farm that really haven't changed much over the last several years, um, but we're, we're not wasting any expenses on them. We should be, and some of this is rented ground, we should you know, contact the landlord and say, hey, we need to do something different, but we're just basically not fertilizing, not planting. If nothing's growing there, why, <laughs> why spend that money? Don't on put it? any inputs. Don't in put there. any inputs. It's already high in, in nutrients. I mean, there's no very yeah. It could be five or six hundred pounds of nitrogen per acre out there, easy. Are you letting? Uh, are you trying to control weeds? Are you letting foxtail barley, kochia grow on those areas, or are you trying to uh, <laughs> spray those out and you know be a good farmer per se? That's. I hate weeds, and it's tough. I know foxtail barley. I because we do have a lot of areas. There, you know, those low areas are prime habitat for foxtail barley. Um, in those areas that a crop will grow, I am killing those out. Um, but I still, yeah, still hate to see weeds out there growing, but there's something, something needs to be growing. And, and I just know that those weed seeds tumble and scatter all over. And then, yeah, you're forced to use higher rates of Roundup in subsequent years, which is frustrating. But yeah, I, I try to let as much around the fringe grow as possible, but it's, it's tough. And especially nowadays when I'm not actually in the sprayer, um, having that happen. As you address rented ground, it's tough to go in. Like you say, it should probably be put into a perennial, but as a rented piece of ground, you're paying the same rent across the field. And that's one thing we've struggled with, trying to get landlords to see that benefit and say, okay, if we treat this area better, um, long-term it's going to be better for their value of their land but we as a renter can't justify doing that um, if we can get the landlord involved with that um, makes it a lot easier and it is it is a challenge as more and more of the landlords are two and three generations away from the farm they don't have that direct connection to the land um, bringing that story to them uh, it's interesting seeing the reaction to people. Um, some have no interest. They're just after the, the top dollar, whatever their manager tells them they should be getting. Others do take an interest in it, but it is sometimes a slow process and it may not happen in one visit. I mean, it takes, takes time. And the habitat would be great. You know, if we could do two or three acre blocks of habitat, you know, for pheasants and other wildlife, it'd be great. Uh, you know, so we've kind of been associated with this sailing discussion is, has been, I think everyone's kind of mentioned a little bit of economics in this. You know, how you, how do you make some of these practices pay? Uh, I think Bryce had a good, Good kind of conversation started during the break that we thought we might bring up. So if you wanted to, yeah, I think if you could. Um, the the small grain, the winter wheat or oats or however, um, we'd love to have another rotation on our farm. But with cash rents where they're at and being a young producer, we we don't have the equity or the the cash built up. I guess I'd say to 
to get through a year of a loss or however how have you guys found uh, to work with those those small grains and and not only the cash flow where where do you where do you find markets for them you know, a lot of our local elevators would just as soon deal with corn and beans and that's about it <laughs> Um, that we were able to integrate the small grains on our farm. We had the same problem that you discussed with not really having a market to sell it. Um, and one option could be either food grade, if you can you know, find the company to, to work with that. We were talking about mills, and that's one particular option. Another would be South Dakota has a great certified seed program, especially with oats. Um, and you know, there's some options with wheat, too. And if you can afford the input cost of buying the certified seed, the foundation seed in the first place, that's another great way to try to get into small grains and know that you have a market, you know, as long as you meet the standards um, with the test weight, essentially, and you can have a weed-free seed test for the most part, you can find someone that will buy that seed. So just another option, but again, it costs a little more up front because you have to buy that foundation seed to get started. Well, it's been easier for me because our family farm was basically, my dad had wheat, fallow, milo, you know, sunflowers years ago. So we've always had wheat in our rotation. So it's been easier. And just the fact that it's going to improve the yields of your other crops, you know, makes it worth it for us. But as far as any good advice to give to a young producer that's, you know, needing income and profits year to year, I don't have any really good thoughts other than you know working small Craig what do you think well, yeah I mean there's it's for one thing the crop insurance it, it, you know it's a decentive to plant small grains because a lot of people don't if you've been plant once you get planting them you build up yield history then it's all right but if you're just starting out you don't have a yield history it's it's not easy you just you know you just have to do some to try to build up yield history and then see I mean you see effects like a lot of times three four years out I mean it's hard to look that far out but I, I have seen with the small grain on the soybean yields even two years out be like five bushel better than where a field I mean I've seen that more times probably than I have seen a big bump the following the first year right after I put corn in you know it seemed like a lot of times in a wet year you don't see a big Sometimes it's kind of hard to get a perfect stand into that cover crop wheat stubble. So sometimes it's just kind of a, kind of, it yields about the same, in a wet year it probably yields about the same as behind beans or in a dry year it'd probably be higher. But the, almost always to see a bump in the soybeans the following year, so two years out. So I mean, it's hard to, you know, always. To yeah, I would say, to we all often struggle getting the plant, the wheat planted soon enough so that it's nice and growthy and tillered before freeze up. Um, we plant too much wheat into October, and so we need to actually do a better job of raising shorter day soybeans probably, getting them in sooner so you can plant wheat 20th of September so you have a better start is, is another helpful hint, I, I would say. And then, you know, management, intensively management as best you can, so you got to be pushing for yields. Phosphorus on the wheat can low phosphorus can really hammer the early growth on the wheat. Um, we've always had some livestock in the rotation. We can utilize the straw and utilize a cover crop. Um, that helps. So we've got some acres that have wheat on, but we've got a bunch of acres that don't. 
um, the acres that we've had a three-way crop rotation in the last 10 years, the organic matter has come up quicker on those in a corn bean. We just don't have enough uh, grass in a corn bean rotation. At best, we're maintaining to slightly increasing organic matter there. With the cover crops, it's helping, but if we really want to move that organic matter level, we need to get that third crop of cereal in there. Um, but the only way we've made it work is with the livestock integrated in there. Um, otherwise, a crop of wheat, yeah, oftentimes is, is a negative for us. Um, and we've seen the same thing on the beans and the corn. Generally, if we do a good job of managing our cover crop, we'll have an increase. There's been a few years where we've been too aggressive on the covers where we may, may have hurt ourselves a little bit on the corn. Uh, so that's kind of a fine line there. Um, but yeah, when you got to work with a banker and uh, need money for expansion and things, cereal grains are tough. Um, and that's where maybe working with the landlords, if there's some way that they can uh, give some flexibility or see some value in that as building their value of their ground um, is what we've tried but not had a lot of success there either. You mentioned, Daniel, you mentioned earlier the benefit to the wheat and your rotation also from a livestock producer having a place to go with the manure, correct? Yeah, so handling manure under no-till was a concern. It was we started into no-till 15 plus years ago. That was a, a stumbling block. We, a lot of times we were still incorporating and doing things with the manure. The cover crops after winter wheat have allowed us to plant the cover crop. A lot of times, I should take one step back, we actually go out and drag our wheat stubble, get the volunteer wheat to sprout, then we spray that so that we know what kind of cover crop we're going to have, let that grow four or five inches, then we're hauling the manure over that live cover crop. Um, and that gives us additional growth in the cover crop to graze. And by spring, when you got that canopy of brassicas and oats and other things in there, that manure that was little chunks has, has broke down and there's no problem planting through it. And I, I really don't think we lose a lot of nutrients because we're, we've got that, it's on a growing cover crop. Um, maybe we lose a little nitrogen, um, but generally that's a drier part of the year where it's not really gonna run off, I mean, and it's in an organic form that's more slow release. Um, it, there's a lot of benefits to it with the livestock incorporating that small grain. So when you're incorporating the livestock, are you taking some of that straw off and then that's when you're putting the manure back for that justification or? Yeah, so we need some straw for bedding and feed. We blend it in. We use, a, right now the cattle are on a big blue stem Indian switchgrass straw and alfalfa, kind of a third, third mix. So we're using the straw in the diet and then we're hauling that manure back. Or sometimes we're even feeding the cattle out on that cover crop, letting them spread their own manure, even though they got a poor spreader on the back, but that's a whole other design issue. Um, getting them to at least spread it somewhat on their own is a lot better than have to haul in all of it. Um, so we're currently feeding on some clay hilltops trying to increase the organic matter and infiltration there. Do you worry about with the harrow, I mean, disturbing the soil and scratching up and you know, causing some weeds to germinate? That is the drawback of doing that. Um, but we're, we normally spread the chaff and drop the straw so we don't have as much concentrated wheat. Um, but yeah, there is, that is a big drawback to harrowing it. But we find getting that volunteer wheat killed, we can control the carbon to nitrogen ratio in the cover crop better. Um, 
yeah, there's some years we don't. I mean, if it's dry, no rain in the forecast, we get the cover crop planted. Come, we want the cover crop in by the 10th of August after our wheat. If it hasn't rained or hasn't done things that we could get the wheat volunteered, we just go. Um, it's more important to get that cover started. I think I think one thing that uh, with with the small grains, I think what you're going to see though right now, I mean, we sell some of ours direct to the mill because they're looking for high. I mean, with the no-till crop, sometimes you get a little higher quality, and so sometimes you get a pretty good price premium if you can go directly to a mill. And I think those, you know, it, it, the sustainability of a no-till system is going to help sell. I mean, these places are looking to be able to say, "Our we're." we're producing products in sustainable ways. So well, even those mills are starting to look for things like that. So I think there'll be a future, a, be, a good market, maybe a little bit, you know, at least so to make a little more money on those small grains by going directly to a mill. And that wraps up this episode. Thank you guys for checking it out. We hope you've enjoyed this series. Tune back in as our next podcast will feature another excerpt from this interview. Everyone around the table will be discussing things like soil resilience, soil structure, and conservation practices. I am Barrett Self. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great week. Mm -hmm.